You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch at Calvary Chapel of Crook County as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join Pastor Ryan now. Luke chapter 4, continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke that we began a few weeks ago. And at this point, we are really thrust into the life of Jesus. And we, we ended uh, in chapter 3 last week with Jesus and his baptism. And he, he identified with us in baptism. And, and it says that a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in this affirmation from the Father will really thrust Jesus into his ministry. And now we're going to see that Jesus' ministry begins with a series of temptations over 40 days at the hands of the devil. And I think there may be times as as we go through the word that, that you might think to yourself, that doesn't really have application to me. I, I don't really struggle with that or that isn't something that, that I'm going through. Or, you know, I'm not married, so marriage principles don't have anything to do with me. Or, you know, I'm not a, 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 a man. And so these leadership principles that Ryan's talking about, they don't necessarily have anything to do with me. But this subject of temptation that we're going to talk about this morning there's not one of us that doesn't struggle with that. Now, I've, I've ran into people that say they're not tempted, that they, they never sin. I, I've talked to people like that. And, and right away, you know that they're either on drugs or they're just simply not living in the world I'm living in. Or they're just liars. Because every one of us is tempted. Now, temptation is very subjective because what you're tempted with may not tempt me at all. And, and what I'm tempted with may not be an issue for you. And some of the things that we're going to see Jesus tempted with, turning stones into bread, that's not a temptation for me because it's impossible. I, I'm not normally tempted with the impossible. I, I'm not tempted to, to do things that, that are out of the realm of possibility. What I'm tempted with are things that are at my disposal, things that I can do, things that I can bring to pass. And so the temptations that we see in the life of Christ may not be the exact temptations that you have, but clearly the overarching principle of temptation applies to us. And in 1 John chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but I just want to read to you the, the general idea of what temptation is. It, it's basically the love of the world. It, it, temptation is the desire for things that are opposed to God. And John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, three main categories of temptation and of sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And so basically John is introducing us to the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And that's really our choice. And that's what we're tempted with is to reject the kingdom of God and, and to be sucked into the kingdom of this world. And that's a choice that we have on a daily basis of what we're going to identify with. 
Am I going to identify with the kingdom of this world and the patterns of this world, the lust of my flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life? Am I going to become a citizen of this world? Or am I going to be a citizen of heaven and reject the things of the flesh and of the world? And what Jesus proves to us is that we can have victory, not in our own strength, but we can have victory as he's already given it to us and as we appropriate that victory in our own personal lives. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man. So first of all, when you're tempted, you have to realize that Jesus has been tempted in every way that you are being tempted and he overcame it. And that every person who's ever lived has been tempted and it's common to man that you're not the only one and that you can have victory. It says, no temptation has overcome you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may, may be able to endure it. See, we have the opportunity to have victory. And people say, I, I just couldn't help myself. I had to give in. It was too powerful. It was too strong. And that is a lie. We don't have to. We have victory. No temptation has come into your life that you aren't able, that God hasn't given you the ability to overcome, to have victory. And that victory is through Jesus, who in every way that you have ever been tempted, any temptation you've ever had, Jesus has went through it, overcome it, and come out on the other side victorious. Because we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And so that's the message that I want to leave you with today. I want you to walk away with today. Not that you're a failure, not how hard life is, not that this is just such a, a burden and so difficult and how in the world can I ever overcome these things? I want you to walk away saying Jesus overcame it and he's given me the ability to appropriate that victory into my own personal life. And it says, then Jesus, and so th that phrase connects back to his baptism. Then Jesus, right after his baptism, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so here's Jesus, who's been affirmed by the Father, who's filled with the Spirit right in the midst of the will of God. There's nothing about Jesus' life that is opposed to God. He's pleasing to the Lord. He's right in the middle of God's will. And what happens? He's led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And you guys, you can be right in the midst of God's will, being led by the Lord, and be led into times of difficulty and trial and hardship and isolation and loneliness and testing. That's what we see here is Jesus is led by the Spirit into a time of difficulty and trial and temptation. Being tempted or tested for 40 days by the devil. Now, something that I want you to understand is that when Jesus is being tempted over these 40 days, it, it is a consistent temptation over this amount of time that, that Jesus just isn't out in the wilderness 
And then on the last day, the devil comes to him and throws a few temptations out and then takes off. That's kind of how this is read sometimes. But Jesus was being tempted over the course of this entire 40 days. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. So for these 40 days, Jesus fasts. He doesn't eat anything. This is a time of preparation in Jesus' life where he is proving his victory over his flesh. Because remember, you guys, that Jesus is fully human. And there is this false teaching that was very prevalent in the beginnings of our nation's history called docetism that basically says that Jesus looked like a man, but he really wasn't a man. He, he had the appearance of a man. And the fact is, is that Jesus was fully human, fully human in all ways, except that he never sinned. And so all of the, the, the weaknesses and the struggles and the issues that are associated with being a human, Jesus went through. And he was proving that he had victory over the body appetites that rule us. And one of the ways you can do that is fasting. Fasting is a great way to discipline your body. A great way to, to bring discipline not only in the area of food, but in all areas of life. Because you're, you're telling your body that you are in control of it. It's not in control of you. And I'm always amazed when, when I read this that he went without food for 40 days because I think about going without food for about 40 minutes and, and I'm thinking that I'm really deprived. And, and then I love that it says he was hungry. And it's like one of these phrases in the Bible where you just want to say, well, duh, he was hungry. But there's more to it than that because scientists have, have shown that when you go without food... For the first two or three days, you are extremely hungry. And if you've ever fasted, you, you know that, that the first day is the hardest. Then the second day is difficult. And after the third day, it actually gets easier. Now, I, I wish I could say I've fasted longer than that. I never have. Um, and, and so I'm not wanting to, to speak to you as from experience, but just from what I've been told. But... After the third or fourth day, you actually lose your appetite and you're no longer hungry. And then they found, interestingly enough, that by around day 40, you get hungry again. And it's at that point that you're dying. And it's at that point that you need to eat. Because between day four and 40, your body is actually eating all of its reserves and, and, and your fat tissue and, and all of the, the, the nutrients that are stored in your body that, as, as you can see, looking at me, I could go 40 days and, and, and probably uh, be just fine. But he was hungry. And so this is a point where Jesus is now literally starving to death. And it's at this time the devil comes to him, seizing upon this opportunity where Jesus is ravenously hungry and weak physically, and says to him, if you are the Son of God, and so he's questioning his relationship to the Father. If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, when you read the Bible, you guys, one of the best things that you can do is to ask yourself questions. 
And I think a legitimate question here is, what would be wrong with that? He's starving to death. What would be wrong with eating? And see, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this applied to, you know, that you shouldn't overeat and that you need to have control over your eating and that Jesus was a person that um, was in control and he wasn't a glutton. Now, certainly there's application there, but that's not at all what Jesus is being tempted with. For crying out loud, he just went 40 days without eating. I think he proved that he's not a glutton. I think he proved that he has power over that area of his life. That's not the temptation. The temptation is to doubt God's provision. Because God had said, I will provide for you. My provision is better than your provision. That if you'll just step aside and let me do it, I'll take care of you. And in sending Jesus to the earth, he was going to take care of every need that Jesus had. And the devil is saying, you need to provide for yourself. Obviously, the father has turned his back on you. Obviously, God doesn't care about you. You're going to starve to death out here. And it's the same thing that God would say to us is that I'll provide for you. Just like I provide for the the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, I'm going to provide for you. And we are faced with a decision. Am I going to trust that? Am I going to believe that? Or am I going to trust in my own provision? Now, again, I'm not tempted to turn stones into bread because I can't do that. It's impossible for me. But Jesus had the power, the ability. He could have done that. But we do have the ability to take things into our own hands when it comes to provision, don't we? Maybe not turning stones into bread, but, but maybe in rejecting God's word when he says, I want you to, to work six days and to rest. And, and you say, you know what, Lord, I know that you've promised to provide for me in six days. And I know you said that I shouldn't work round the clock, but I reject that. And I'm going to take things into my own hands because I've got to provide for myself because obviously you're not doing it. Or maybe God's shown you that, that in your family that your wife isn't to work and that she needs to be home with the kids. And you've said, Lord, I know that's what you've shown me to do, but I'm rejecting that. And my wife's got to work in order to make this happen. Or, Lord, I know that you've asked me to, to give and to be generous and, and to put you first with my finances. But God, that's not possible. I've got to turn these stones into bread by taking my entire check and using it for myself and my family because, God, you're not going to provide with the portion that was supposed to be set aside for me. And if I give the portion that was supposed to be set aside for you, if I give that to you, if I give that to your work, if I give that to the church, Lord, you can't possibly provide for me. And so what this is, is Satan coming to Jesus, bringing doubt to God's provision, believing that, that you need to provide for yourself, doubting God's promises, his goodness to you. And Jesus answered him saying, it is written. He takes him to scripture. And each and every time that Jesus is tempted here, he takes the devil to the word of God. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. He takes him to Deuteronomy. And he says, look, I, I don't need 
the world's provision. I don't need the world's goods. I don't need my own provision for myself. I have God's promises. I have God's provision, and that's all that I need. His word is good enough. I will take that to the bank, and it will sustain me, and it will carry me through. And and the key here for us, you guys, the application for us, is, is that God has promised you to provide for you, to take care of your needs. And you just need to get out of the way and allow God to do that. You need to be faithful, to work hard, but to work within the parameters that God has set up. You don't need to to lie or to cheat or to steal. And there's many ways we do that. Lying, cheating, stealing that aren't necessarily conventional. I'm not saying that you're going to be tempted to go rob a bank. Maybe you are. But you can lie and steal and cheat from God in a lot of other ways besides holding up a bank. You can rob from God by not giving to him. You can rob from God by the other examples that I gave. And and that's the temptation, to take things into your own hands and to make it happen. Jesus, you're the son of God. You're, You're powerful. Turn these stones into bread. You can do it. And the temptation for you is, hey, I can make this happen. I'll just take matters into my own hands. I've got the power to do that. And you need to reject that. And you need to allow the Lord to provide for you and for God to bring his word to pass and live not by bread alone, not by your own provision, not by your own sustenance, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And I don't exactly know how this went down. He took him on a high mountain, doesn't say which, but clearly there's no mountain in Israel in which you could see all the kingdoms of the world. And so I think that the devil takes Jesus into a a realm of fantasy. He takes Jesus into the the realm of really the phony and the fake in, in a fantasy world. And he says to him, all this authority, all the authority of the world and the kingdoms of the world, I will give to you and their glory. The authority, the power, the glory, the prestige. I will give it to you, for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Now, Jesus doesn't argue with Satan here and say, that isn't true. You can't do that. And so there there is some truth to what Satan is telling Jesus. Although I think it's wrapped in a lie, because ultimately Satan is going to be defeated. And ultimately, he doesn't have sovereignty over the world. And ultimately, these things don't belong to him because he's going to be cast into outer darkness. But for this time, it is true. Because of the sin of mankind, initially by Adam and Eve and then passed on to every one of their descendants, Satan has been given the keys and the power of this world. He's called the prince of the air. He's called the king of this world. And so there is some truth to this, that he is able to give Jesus all the power and all the glory that that he brings him into in this sort of fantasy world is how I kind of conceive this happening. And so what is the temptation here? I think the temptation is that Satan wants Jesus to doubt God's plan. He wanted him to doubt God's provision With the first temptation, he's now wanting him to doubt God's plan. Why is that? Because the whole purpose behind Jesus coming to the earth was 
to redeem the kingdoms of this world back to himself. He took on human flesh so that he could purchase, pay the ransom price for the sin of the world so that he could have authority over the world, so that he could be their king, so that they would glorify him, so that they could have relationship with him. And basically what Satan is saying to Jesus is, look, you can have that and have it in a much easier way. Take the easy road, Jesus. You don't have to go through all this suffering. You don't have to do all this preparation. You don't have to go to the cross. Just take the easy route. The easy route to redemption is what Satan is telling Jesus. And so Satan was, was acquainted with the plan of God. And, and he wraps some truth in with a lie. And see, he'll do the same thing to you. He'll make it seem like this is a good thing. I'm doing this for the Lord. But I'm just going to circumvent the difficulty. I'm going to take the easy road. And you guys know this, that God's plan is better than your plan. It sounds simple, but know that. That his ways are better than your ways. And at the present, you might not see that. And it may not make sense to you. But God isn't bound by the circumstances of your life. And he isn't bound by the present situation. He sees your past, your present, and your future all happening at one time. And that's somebody that you want to trust. Somebody that can see everything in your life happening and unfolding as one event. It would be like if you were going to bet on a football game. If you were going to bet on one of the games today. If there was someone that was above time and and already knew the outcome of the game, that would be someone to rely upon for who you're going to bet with. And why it is that we don't trust God. Why it is that, that we think we understand better is because we just don't believe that God is who he says he is. We believe that we have a better plan, that, that we have a better way to make this happen. And so know, you guys, that, that God's plan is always the best, even when it's a difficult road, even when it's a struggle. And when you look at the life of Christ, you see that Jesus took no shortcuts. He was born as a baby. He went through all of that and had to grow and had to learn. When it says in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature with both God and men, it, it doesn't mean anything other than that, that Jesus grew in stature just like you did, just like I did. That he was born as a little baby and he grew into adulthood and that he also had to learn just like you had to learn and just like your kids are learning. That means that Jesus wasn't talking like a scholar at three years old. That he had to learn things. Now, was he smarter than you and I? Absolutely. At 12, he was astounding the, 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 the men in the temple. But he had to learn things and grow And he never took shortcuts. Jesus had to study the Bible the same way you and I do. The scrolls. And he had to memorize. I think we have this picture of Jesus that that he was born and and, and it was just like he was a computer. And he just turned on a switch and, and he had all of it downloaded. It was like a Bible software program. He just knew everything. But that's not what the Bible says. It says he learned. And he grew just like we do. And he never took shortcuts. I mean, I would have been super tempted to take shortcuts if I was him. Like, you know, hey, Jesus, go mow the lawn. That's already done. 
Hey, um, will you go fold those clothes? Oh, I already took care of that. Empty the dishwasher? Yep, it's done. I mean, how, how cool would that have been? Or I would have said, you know, Father, how about I'm just born at like 32. And, you know, I'll, I'll hang out a little bit, get to know a couple people. We'll get this thing done. We'll bang it out real quick. Why, why do I got to go through all this? Why all the preparation? And, and, and maybe you're thinking that in your own life. Why do I have to go through all of this difficulty and hardship and struggle? Because that's where character is born. That's where God's plan is worked out in your life. It's, it's clear when you talk to any successful person, whether it's success worldly or success in the things of God, it, it, it still translates, the principle is still true, that any successful person has had difficulties that have made them and brought them to the point that they're at. How many of these billionaires do, do we see who have been bankrupt and destitute three or four times? How many of these inventors had to scrap and throw their ideas away hundreds of times before they finally got one that was right? And it's preparation that, that brings us to where God wants us to be. It's what allows his plan to unfold. And if you try to circumvent that, the way that Satan wants Jesus to circumvent the plan of God, you will sell yourself short on what God wants to do. And you'll waste time. Because guess what? God never advances us like the school system does. You know, some people graduate from high school and they've never read a book or they can't hardly read at all. I remember talking with guys and them saying, yep, I've never read a book in my life. I don't know how I'm graduating, but somehow I got pushed through. I I never did one assignment. I just faked it all and, you know, got D's and and here I am. God doesn't do that. He doesn't take you past one step until you've accomplished what he has for you. So if you try to circumvent that, he'll just bring you back And, and you can keep doing that your whole life. And and you'll, you'll die a person who has basically done nothing of any eternal significance. And, and that's, that's what Jesus is being tempted with, is to doubt God's plan. Take the easy road, the path of least resistance. It's clearly what this world offers to us in so many different forms, especially this time of year. I mean, you just watch infomercials, 10 o'clock at night, just turn on network television this time of year. And everybody's got a quick solution to your problems. If your weight's a problem, hey, just take this pill. Don't worry that it makes your heart beat 2 million beats per second and, and that you're probably going to die of a heart attack. Don't worry about that. But, but look at this person here. See him there? Look at him. That's what they look like. But if they'll take this pill in a couple weeks, you will be a stud. You'll have a washboard stomach, You'll go from 80% body fat to 2%. Just take a pill. Oh, and by the way, the pills are $50 a piece, but you know, and you need three of them a day and they'll probably kill you, but that's okay. Just take this quickie and, and they sell because it's easy. Or this one step closet organizer, no tools necessary. Just open the box, it unfolds, throw it in your closet and it will do the rest. And People buy it because it's appealing, it's easy, it's the path of least resistance. And it's what God wants you to realize is an absolute lie. There's no path 
other than his path that will bring you to a place of abundance, of fulfillment, of joy. You have to to go by his plan because he knows what's best for you. And basically the devil said, all you have to do if you want this is just worship me. Verse 7, if you will worship before me, all of this will be yours. Just worship me. Don't go to the cross. Just worship me. And that is what Satan wants from you, is for you to worship him and not God himself. Now, how you do that, he could care less. I, I think when we think about satanic worship, we think about dressing in black, painting our fingernails, creeping around at night, kidnapping kittens and sacrificing them in the woods. You know, I think that's what we think of when we think of satanic worship, getting black curtains, you know, playing death metal music, lighting candles. That's not necessarily the only way that you worship Satan. Now, clearly that's one of the ways, and clearly there are some Satan worshipers, and there's the church of Satan, there's the satanic Bible. And and remember back in the 80s, if you played, you know, rock and roll backwards on your record player, you'd be instantly filled with the devil, I, I mean, where we come up with this crazy stuff, I have no idea. You know, you listen, who, first of all, who listens to records backwards? Have you ever been tempted to do that? The only time was when you watched the show that said to do it, and it was like, oh, let's listen to it backwards. All of a sudden, oh, I'm filled with the devil, you know. It's like, it's your fault. You're the one that told me. If that's really what's going on, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Satanic worship is normally much more subtle than that. Satanic worship is when we replace the creation with the creator in any way. And so it's when I worship material things, my car, my house, and how many people worship those things. It's where they spend all of their money, all of their thoughts, all of their efforts. I can't wait to do this and fix up my car and trick it out a little bit more. And it's just consuming you or your home, or just the pursuit of wealth and of money, period. People worship that. Or how many people worship God's creation by worshiping the human body? And that's why the, the, the worship of sex is so pervasive in our culture. Because it's, it's, a, it's a worship substitute. Because man has been made to worship God. But Satan comes in and says, you don't really want to worship the creator. Look at this. Look at this creation. Let's worship that. That's what you want to worship. And so men and women are selling themselves, literally sometimes, but are giving their lives to the worship of the human body. And see, those emotions and and those feelings that are being manifested in lustful and perverted and twisted ways really originate with our need to worship and our need to look beyond ourself. But we settle for something less. We settle for the creation. And what we ought to do is say, Lord, you have created an amazing thing for for me to enjoy within the confines of marriage. God, you have created the human body and it is amazing, but I'm not going to worship That, I'm going to worship you. Rather than worshiping the product, I'm going to worship the producer. Rather than than worship what is made, I'm going to worship the maker. And so we we look beyond what's right in front of us. See the the path of least resistance. And and we we go to the, the one 
that can bring true fulfillment and true joy and, and can truly fulfill us. And Jesus says to Satan, get behind me. The same thing that Jesus said to Peter when Peter tempted Jesus to circumvent the plan of God. At the end of Jesus' life, when Jesus said, look guys, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to give my life for the sins of the world. I'm going to die. I won't be with you anymore. And Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. I won't allow that to happen. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. He didn't sugarcoat it at all. Get behind me, Satan. The same thing that Jesus says now. And the same thing that you ought to say if there's anything that's in your life that's getting in the way of God's plan for you. If there's anything in your life that you are putting in front of the worship of your creator, you need to say, get behind me, Satan. You are bringing destruction and devastation and death into my life. You are trying to get me to obey you and to follow you rather than for me to obey God and his plan. And you have to recognize that. You have to recognize that that thing in your life, whatever it is, whatever it is that's, that's in the, the way of God's plan for you, that you have to recognize that that thing is Satan to you, that that thing is an object of satanic worship. And so just picture that and, and picture the fact that you are worshiping at the throne of Satan as you're putting that thing into your life. You don't need to paint your fingernails. You don't need to sacrifice little animals to be a worshiper of Satan. All you need to do is to allow him to put things in your life that divert your focus from Jesus and that tempt you to circumvent the plan of God for your life. And again, Jesus quotes the word. He says, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so once again, to overcome temptation, Jesus uses the Bible uses the word of God. Then it says the devil brought Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the, the, the part of the, the roof structure of the temple that was the highest point that actually looked over the Kidron Valley. It was a 450-foot drop-off. He brought him to that point. And, and it seems that, that literally Jesus was, was up there on the temple and, and, and the, the, the wind is blowing his hair and his robe and Satan is there manifesting himself somehow and in some way. And Satan says to Jesus, if you're truly the son of God, if you're truly who you say you are, again, bringing doubt to God's word. God already said who Jesus was at his baptism. And the same thing that Satan did to Eve in the garden has God really said that? It's the same thing that Satan will do to you. Do you really think that God has said that? Does that really make sense to you? And he begins to twist it and begins to make you think, you know what? That is kind of stupid, isn't it? That doesn't make any sense. If you're really the son of God, throw yourself down from here. There's a smart thing to do. Some of the things that we're tempted to do are the stupidest things in the world. But at the time, it seems really smart. It seems really cool. Like some of the stuff that, that you do in high school and the, some of the things that you young people are tempted to do. I mean, you know, driving cars that aren't intended to drive 150 miles an hour down the road, racing somebody else, you know, the car that you bought for f 500 bucks, the lug nuts are about ready to just blow up. And I remember doing stupid stuff like that. And how many of us should be dead? And... Being, being tempted to just do the most ridiculous things. 
And yet at the time, it seemed really cool. And, and as you look back on things, you begin to realize that many of the choices that you've made are absolutely ridiculous. Yes, I think this is a really good plan for my life. I am going to sleep with everybody that comes across my path. And that is going to just really thrust me into successful living. That is just going to be amazing. It's going to do wonders for my family. It's, it's going to do wonders for my health. What a great decision. How about some of these young people today that are these young women who, who think it's a good idea to get pregnant at like 16 and, and several of them in high school will get together and say, okay, we're going to have a, we're going to have a pregnancy pact and we're all going to get pregnant. It doesn't matter by who, just get pregnant. Just find some guy to impregnate you. That's brilliant. But you know what? As you get older and more sophisticated, you don't typically make stupid choices like that that are so blatantly, obviously stupid, but you still make stupid choices that seem good at the time, like working 100 hours a week as a, as a father, and then when you're 60, 70, 80 years old, wondering why your kids never visit you. And then you look back and go, maybe it's because they don't even know who I am. Why would they come visit me? What would be the point? I never talked to them when they were a kid. Why would they talk to me now? Or, or whatever decision, it, it just seems so right to, to flirt with that, that guy at the gym. And it just made sense because I'm lonely and my husband doesn't talk to me and, and he doesn't care about me and I needed some affection and this guy was so friendly and, and it made sense, but, but now it's destroyed my family. And now I'm pregnant by this guy and he took off. And now my husband wants nothing to do with me and neither do my kids. And so I'm now raising this child on my own. And I mean, just the stupid things that people do. And that's what Satan tried to get Jesus to do. And you might think, I mean, where's the temptation to jump off of the temple? But where's the temptation to do half the stuff we do? And Jesus just instantaneously is going to once again come back at him with the word. But before he does that, Satan actually says, you know what, if you're going to use the word, I'll use the word. And he says, look, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? Doesn't the Bible say he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you? And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone? So Satan's like, I can get in on this game. I know the Bible. Don't think that Satan is ignorant to the Bible and to the things of God. Satan led worship in heaven for eons before being cast out of heaven. He's not ignorant to the things of God. Satan is a believer in God. He doesn't not believe in God. It wasn't like all of a sudden Satan got stupid and said, you know what, I don't even believe you exist anymore, God, because I'm mad at you. He's not a three-year-old. He believes in God. He just doesn't love God. He doesn't submit his life to God. He doesn't submit his very existence to the plan of God. That's the difference. And so Satan knows the Bible, but he uses the Bible for his own purposes. And he twists it here, and he takes it out of context. And that's why it's so important to read the Bible and to apply the Bible and to interpret the Bible within its context. And, and not to just rip scriptures out and say, see, God wants me to be rich. Because it says, go out in riches somewhere in the Old Testament. See, there it is. God wants me to be rich. And I mean, 
Trust me, you could make the Bible say anything by ripping out a sentence. The Bible could command you to do all sorts of evil. It has to be understood within its context. And Satan rips this verse out of Psalm 91 and says, Look, Jesus, if you're really the Son of God, God will protect you. And that's what he's bringing is a doubt of God's protection from from Jesus' perspective. God's not going to protect you, Jesus. You sure you really want to go to the cross and, and all of that? Maybe you ought to make sure first that God's behind you. Let's give it a little test run here. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, goes back to the word, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And you guys, here is the thing is that in your temptation, whatever it is, whether it's sexually, whether it's greed, whether it's anger, pride, envy, jealousy, whatever temptation is coming your way, know this, that Jesus has victory over it and the devil departed from Jesus. Jesus won. And when temptation comes into your life, however it manifests itself to you, and believe me, Satan knows you. He knows you personally. He knows what to bring. If you don't like broccoli, he's not bringing you broccoli. He's not going to tempt you with things that, that you have no aversion or affinity to. He, he's going to bring things into your life that will lure you away and, and cause you to worship him and the things of this world rather than the things of God. But know that you've been given victory through Jesus. And so when that temptation comes, you can have victory. Just like the children of Israel, as they were thrust into the promised land, a land of many wars and battles. And what did Joshua tell them? Go, God has given us the victory. Joshua, who was a type of Christ. Here, you guys are apportioned that piece of of the promised land. You're given this part. And the victory was already won. They just had to go and appropriate it into their life. And so there was divine provision But then there was human responsibility. And the same is true in your life. God has given you the victory, but you've got to want it, number one, and you've got to appropriate it into your life. And will you? It's a question of who do you want to worship more? Who do you want to obey more? Who do you believe more? And what we see is that Jesus was filled with the Spirit and he was filled with the Word beforehand. He didn't say, you know what, Satan, hang on a second. I got to go to church I'm going to worship a little bit. I got to get in the spirit here. Um, let, where's my Bible? Okay, hang on. Let me let me let me look something up here. I know it's in here. Hang hang on. Yep yep yep. Oh wait no, no. He knew he knew the word and he was able to use the word instantly. It was at his disposal. You guys, may the year 2009 be a year that you get the word inside of you. That like Jeremiah. His words would be found by you and you would eat them, that you would consume them. Otherwise, this world will consume you and you'll have no weapon to defeat it. Satan will be victorious in your life without the word. That's the offensive weapon we've been given. Ephesians chapter six in this warfare that we're all engaged in, the weapon that you use and that I use offensively is the sword of the spirit. And a sword to a soldier is useless if he doesn't know how to use it. He'll get destroyed. And the sword of the spirit is useless to you if you don't know it. I mean, just carrying it around 
And having one on your coffee table or on your bookshelf or having any number of them in every crevice of your life, your glove box, the toaster oven, you know, that doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, we have an abundance of Bibles. I don't know how many Bibles I have, 30, 40 probably. Every version that's ever been written, I have it on my computer. It wouldn't, I might as well have none if I don't consume it and I don't take it in and I don't have it at my disposal so that I can appropriate victory in my life. Let's stand and pray together. Father, what a great section of scripture, Lord. We thank you that we have victory through Jesus. Lord, that you've been tempted in every way that we've ever been tempted and yet you never sinned. And Lord, may that bring encouragement to our life this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch of Calvary Chapel, Crook County. For more information, you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks for listening, and God bless.